this is Dr. Jeffrey Lieberman of the Department of Psychiatry at Columbia University, and this is Shrink Speak. Today, we're devoting our podcast to COVID-19, which is something that has occupied the attention probably of the entire world in a way that's almost unprecedented in most of our lifetimes. And to enlighten us about aspects of this pandemic, we've been able to interview three of renowned experts who have expertise in relevant disciplines pertaining to this pandemic. Subsequently, we'll speak with Dr. Brian Fallon, professor of psychiatry and the director of the Center for Tick-Borne Illnesses and uh, Central Nervous System Complications, Dr. Siddhartha Mukherjee, who is a professor of clinical medicine and oncology. Now we are going to speak with one of the world's leading experts on molecular pathogens and their consequences, Dr. Ian Lipkin, who is the John Snow, Professor of Epidemiology and Director of the Center for Infection and Immunity at Columbia University and the Mailman School of Public Health. Uh, Ian, thank you for being with me today. My pleasure, Jim. I mean, this is like your, your, your bread and butter. I mean, you just, someone who's devoted your whole career to the study of molecular pathogens and also their ability to uh, infect the human species uh, in either limited numbers or in pandemic numbers. What is your assessment of this? Well, this is far more grim than some people think it is. And the manifestations range from the physical illness itself to the economic instability and, of course, the stress that people find themselves under in thinking about how to address, uh, you know, life during the, you know, in, in this time. It's very, very difficult. So, for example, here at Columbia, we're in the process of sending people home. Um, I've been talking with people who run school systems who tell me that children have no place to go, parents have no way to take care of them. Um, you know, there are people who are homeless who are in shelters who are concerned about themselves becoming infected. It's a very stressful time. So you're, you're pointing to the social disruption that this um, pandemic is causing. Uh, is that to say that um, what we've been told in terms of the personal lethality and medical gravity, that it's not that bad an infection, it's just the proportions in which the population will incur it that are the problem? We, the fact is we don't really understand the true mortality rate. And I think it's important to emphasize how the mortality rate is calculated. What we do know is the number of people who present with symptoms of disease who have documented infection using laboratory assays, and we know the number of people who die as a consequence of having this infection. We can talk more about that later. We don't know, however, those people who are either asymptomatic or who have mild disease and never come to the attention of medical authorities and never get a test. My suspicion is that if we think in terms of what's known about other coronavirus infections, that number of people who have asymptomatic or mild infections is going to be much, much larger. All we're examining is the very tip of the iceberg peeking up above the top of the water. So when people talk about a fatality rate of 2% or 3% or 5%, what have you, my feeling is that if you look at all people who've been infected, the mortality rate is going to be much, much lower, well under 1%. We're not going to know that number until we start doing antibody studies to determine how many people in the population have been infected. So we don't know, we don't know the denominator. 
Angela Merkel in Germany has said that they either know or expect 70 percent of the German population to be positive for, for COVID-19. She's projecting that ultimately that's what we'll be looking at. And I think that that is not an unreasonable projection. My own projections are a little lower, but frankly, we're speculating. So we will have a vaccine in a bit over a year. So, and I think if you are not a recipient of the vaccine, that at some point you will get a natural infection. Ultimately, I think the majority of the population will either be infected or will have been vaccinated. Okay. Well, let me warn you, I'm, I'm leading up to what may be kind of a pointed or gotcha question. Um, but uh, first, let me uh, say, so based on what we've been hearing from guidance from multiple sources in the U.S. and locally, and also um, I think is somewhat consistent with what you've been saying, is that the medical risk to individuals who are not in the higher higher risk groups, the elderly uh, having concurrent medical conditions or immunocompromised is not that great. Um, and really the, the greater consequence is into the, is the, the overwhelming the health system and in the uh, social disruption and economic impact of the pandemic. Would you agree with that? That depends on whether or not you're one of these people who's over the age of 60, which you and I both are. Your point is well taken. I think the majority of the morbidity is economic, political, social, psychological. That said, it's still a substantial number of people. Let's say we talk about 1% mortality, and you have 100 million people infected. That would be a million people. If it's half of 1%, it's 500,000 people. So with seasonal influenza every year in the United States, 30 to 40,000 people die of influenza-related complications. This looks like it's going to be higher than that. And it's still going to be a lot of people, right? Because so many people are becoming infected. Okay, so here, here's the gotcha question. This is anecdotal, so uh, I can't vouch for its accuracy, but um, uh, one of our trainees uh, is uh, from Italy. His family is in uh, Milan. He has a, a number of family members who are physicians. And they're saying through him that the uh, severity and the level of medical support that's needed extends well beyond what we've identified as the high-risk groups, the elderly and the uh, medically compromised, that 30, 40-year-olds who don't have severe concurrent medical illnesses are needing to be intubated and require intensive support. Is it possible that there is this either misrepresentation or variation in the severity? So it sounds to me like what you're suggesting is that there may be some sort of either genetic difference in this population, which is unlikely, or that there is a change in the virus that's evolved to become more pathogenic, more capable of causing disease. I think that when we talk about susceptibility, there are always going to be people who, for reasons we don't fully understand, don't fit the usual pattern. So there will be some 30- and 40-year-olds and even younger who will have problems. But the vast majority of the individuals who become ill are going to be those who have underlying medical conditions. Let me switch the focus of the discussion from, you know, the extent of the pandemic and uh, the uh, particular pathogen involved to um, what we should be doing or what we should have done. So you've had experience with many of these uh, kinds of outbreaks before, and you've been called upon to advise governments, medical authorities, 
from all countries on things from AIDS to MERS to Ebola to a variety of different infectious pathogens. What should we be doing now in order to get ahead of this? And what should we have done in the beginning? Or what should we be prepared to do the next time something like this happens? Well, let's start with what we should have done when this first started. And the idea of adequacy and testing and support for the public health infrastructure is something that we've been talking about for years. And it has unfortunately been largely dismantled. So we don't have in the White House an individual who's charged with coordinating activities related to controlling pandemic risk. We've cut the budgets for public health units, local health authorities, government, state authorities, so that we've lost people who could have been recruited to be helpful in controlling this outbreak. We don't have adequate testing facilities. We don't have enough hospital beds. So all of these things are challenges for us, and we're trying to catch up as best we can. However, unlike China, we can't build a hospital in a week, and we can't, by decree, decide that everybody must wear masks or gloves or treat themselves in one way or another. So we have to deal with the constraints of our social fabric. What can we do? We can do the following. Number one, we can educate ourselves. We know that the virus can persist on surfaces and be infectious for up to 72 hours. That means that you need to be washing your hands regularly with soap and water. If you don't have access to soap and water, you can use one of the alcohol uh, solutions, which is useful. Purell makes one, for example, any of the hand sanitizers. But soap and water is really preferred. Secondly, you can avoid touching handles in public conveyances, banisters, straps, poles. If you're going to be riding a public conveyance like the subway or a bus, I use a glove so that I don't touch my face inadvertently with something that has become contaminated. We can treat these surfaces as the MTA is now doing to minimize contamination. There are people who are talking about masks. When I was in Asia, everywhere I went, people wore masks. Here they've been discouraged. I'm not sure that that's appropriate. And when I go into crowded situations, I do wear a mask. But if you are going to wear a mask, it's important that you wear it properly. If you move it around on your face with your fingers and get your fingers underneath the mask, you're doing more damage than you are help in terms of preventing uh, future harm. Social distancing, three feet or more, if at all possible. And we tend to avoid congregation. So as you know, at the PI and at Columbia, we're beginning to limit the amount of time that people spend in gatherings. We're holding them down to 25 people or less. And uh, we're trying to move toward telecommuting. Some people can't telecommute, however. So they have to deal with you know, the risks that are associated with moving through the community. So that's very helpful. And it's like practicing for rare events. It's hard to muster the discipline, but then when it happens, you wish you did it, and it looks like that's the situation we're in. I know that this is not uh, may not be possible to answer, but um, usually uh, these seasonal types of uh, epidemics have a trajectory. Could you speculate as to what you would imagine the trajectory of this pandemic to be? 
This thing is, it's wily. The thing about this is that when you have a disease, um, an infectious disease that can double with every cycle, so one person's infected, then two, then four, you can have something that's percolating below the surface, just bubbling, and suddenly it appears everywhere, and you wonder how it happened. So we are now in the process of trying to control immigration and tourism and people coming from specific numbers of countries, when the fact is we already have several sites where the virus is already replicating and being associated with community-based spread all over the United States. I was doing a podcast with India about a half an hour ago, and there were two physicians who were talking about how things weren't so bad and they were prepared. And we came back from two breaks, and in each one of those breaks, we had lost another person, one in Mumbai and one in Delhi. So we are in the process right now of trying to get a better handle on the amount of risk that we have. I am concerned that we are in this for a marathon. I think we have the resilience to pull out of this. What do you think the prospects of a vaccine are? The prospects of a vaccine are excellent. The, chance, the problem with making vaccines, which is different really than drugs, is that you have to go through several phases of testing. So making vaccines are, is a straightforward process, and there are already several excellent vaccines that I think would serve us well. The problem is we have to go through safety testing, and some of the adverse events associated with vaccines may not be apparent in the first month. It may take a few months for us to see that adverse event. Then we have to test efficacy, and we can't really, in good conscience, give this virus to somebody after they've been vaccinated and say, aha, we've prevented disease. So what we have to do is natural experiments, and by that I mean find a place where there's a lot of infection and give the vaccine that may or may not be effective to half the people and see whether or not we, those people have a lower rate of becoming infected. That takes time. And then we have to do a third phase of testing where we again use larger numbers of people looking for safety and efficacy. And then finally, we have to manufacture and distribute it. For all of these reasons, a vaccine typically takes a minimum of 18 months to get out. So you can try to shorten that period, but I don't see it getting to be less than a year from now and probably a little more. I don't have the rarefied knowledge uh, that you do in infectious disease and in molecular biology and immunology, but from my reckoning, over the past several decades, the outbreaks of new and highly, if not contagious, uh, lethal pathogens has come always from China or Africa. And my inference uh, has been that this is a consequence uh, in part from their uh, hygiene, sanitation, and dietary habits where you have exotic organisms crossing species or getting into the human population. First question, is this uh, an accurate uh, or reasonably accurate conjecture to make? And then secondly, what can be done to prevent this if we know they're emanating from a specific geographic region? Jeff, what you're describing is what we call geographic hotspots, and it's fair to say that these are indeed areas where many of these infections emerge, another is in South America, but they're typically, these are typically areas where there's contact between wildlife and humans. 
70% of all emerging infections do originate in wildlife. And, you know, many examples of those, flu is one, Ebola, Marburg, MERS, SARS, this new SARS, and HIV. These are associated with either direct infection because people consume wild animals or because there's some sort of an insect vector which makes contact with these animals and then we wind up getting infected by a mosquito or a tick. So examples there would be things like dengue and West Nile and in this part of the world, uh, Lyme disease for that matter. Although we don't really know precisely, I can't really say that Lyme disease came from Africa or South America or Asia. It's very important that we eliminate certain cultural practices. One of them is uh, consumption of wild animals. Another is the, uh, is, you know, keeping exotic pets. Same kind of thing can happen with a pet. You don't have to consume it. Now, one of the challenges as we get involved with deforestation and putting roads in areas where they weren't before, say for example, for timbering and so on, is that people um, come into contact with these animals and become infected in that way. Another is that people are poor. And with more challenges with climate change, there's gonna be a need for inexpensive sources of protein. So there's gonna be a, a drive toward consumption of wildlife. We're doing our best, and I think the Chinese are gonna to respond to this, uh, this time because it's been such an expensive lesson, to move away from wild animal markets. And they have been shut down officially, I know that there was an effort to open one of these up in Wuhan um, after the outbreak and the central government came in and shut it down. So there is basis for hope there. But I think you're correct in saying that these diseases appear to be emerging more and more frequently. And because we are increasingly global, whatever it is that happens elsewhere is very rapidly here, which also means we have to take care of global surveillance. We have to take care of our brothers and sisters on the other side of the planet. Is this something that the UN or WHO or World Bank, or there should be some international effort to try and, and motivate or, or require uh, these countries to take action or put it in another context uh, for something like this, which is going to have huge, huge economic uh, losses should uh, damages be you know, sought. So the WHO has been making this point for a long time, but the, you know, the WHO really doesn't have any teeth. So they can persuade and they can cajole, but they can't really enforce. So the major impetus I think that we're going to have is that the Chinese, you know, are, have to address the fact that they had enormous loss of life in Wuhan and that the economic consequences for the country and for the rest of the world have been extreme. So they're highly motivated. And I think that this time, because we've been talking about this since 2003, I think that this is going to be the final proof that this sort of behavior can't be tolerated. Well, uh, I'm afraid we've come to the end of our time, but uh, let me just tell the listening audience that I don't think you could have had uh, more insightful and uh, important information talking to anybody in the world, maybe other than Anthony Fauci. And uh, we've just heard from uh, Dr. Ian Lipkin. So uh, Ian, I want to thank you for your uh, wisdom and sharing this information with us. Thank you for listening. This is Dr. Jeffrey Lieberman of Columbia University. This is Shrink Speak.